Hey, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Everybody doing good? Uh, I'm very excited to wrap up our Crave uh, series today. It's been a joy just to, to look at this passage and, and to see how it's tied to uh, the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and how it's tied to Jesus and the cross. But before we jump into the Word, I want to do something with y'all uh, that I'm trying to do a better job of just, just personally. Uh, life can get, get full in a hurry, all right, especially when you got young kids and get a little hectic. And it's really easy to just run from one thing to the next to the next. And so today, uh, before we get into the Word, uh, I just want us to slow down uh, and to get our hearts ready uh, to receive the Word. So if you guys just put your, your hands out, palms up, nothing special about that. Just, just a posture of uh, surrender. Just close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Remember that God is just as near as the air that you're breathing. There's no condemnation in him. Uh, he loves you. Now as we get into the word, just relax uh, in Jesus. God, this morning, um, would you help us to be tender to your word? That our hearts would be open and receptive to what you have for us. Help us to put away all the frustrations of this past week. Uh, and to, to the distractions of this coming week, just to put them away too. Help us to fully focus on you. Move in a powerful way. We don't want a movement of man. Uh, we want to see the hand of God move in a palpable and powerful way. Fill this place with your spirit. Let it lead us to deeper communion with you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, now let's hop into the word for today. We've read this passage every week. It's 1 John 2. 15 through 17, it says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. Say that part in yellow with me. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. All right, we spent uh, the past three weeks talking about this. And uh, I want to do a quick recap. I don't want to get into all the details there. But uh, it says all sin falls into one of these three categories. The, the cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and then pride, the pride in self. Uh, other translations, they say as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan, he corrupts what God has created. Uh, so uh, those cravings of your flesh are totally good and natural. You will have some cravings that are totally good and natural. You're going to have some cravings of the eyes that might spur you to serve somebody else and to honor God in doing that. You can take pride in what you do, uh, but not in a possessive way where you tie your worth to it. The devil tempts us by taking these good things and corrupting them. I've got a little uh, example I want to show you here. I've got some arrows, okay? So if you were to look at these arrows, and, and each arrow represented uh, a team, all right, a team of people, and they're trying to go up, uh, and I was to ask you which one of these is the most dangerous, uh, most of you guys would say, uh, clearly it's this guy. He don't know where we're going, right? <laughs> Why is he going all the way? Over here. Uh, and I think 
that's where a lot of us would go. We see that, hey, we're trying to go this way. Uh, this guy's a little off, but not too much. Actually, the most dangerous one is this, right here. Because you can look at that one that's going off to the right there, uh, and you can tell that it's clearly not going the way that we're supposed to be going. You can clearly see that one's out of alignment. But this guy right here is just a little bit off. He's just slightly off, and it, it might not be a big deal now, but if they continue to move forward, eventually he's going to be way off. And over time, that makes a big difference. That one right there, that's what Satan likes to do. He likes to corrupt things in small, subtle ways so that over time they end up turning these little deals into big deals. Like you don't realize how you got that far, like turning the heat up slowly on the pot, right, so the frog doesn't jump out. So uh, that's, what, that's what Satan likes to do, to just barely corrupt it. And then once we move down the line, it gets worse and worse and worse. So uh, for the example of the cravings of our flesh, food is good, right? Can I get an amen? All right, yeah. I love me tacos. Valentine's falls on Tuesday. Taco Tuesday for Valentine's Day sounds like a great idea. All right, food is good. Uh, gluttony, uh, overindulging, that's a sin, right? Sex is good. Yeah, I, didn't, I never got an amen on that one, okay? Uh, but, but sleeping around, immorality, not doing things God's way, that is a sin. See, Satan corrupts what God creates. So John, when we read that verse, these three categories, he didn't just pull those out of the thin air. John is actually pulling those from Scripture. See, in the beginning we see that Eve, when she sees uh, the fruit that she's not supposed to eat of, she says that it is beautiful. She sees that the tree is beautiful. That's the lust of the eyes. She says that it's delicious, lust of the flesh, and that it would make her wise like God. That's the pride of life. We see these in Genesis, and we also see this when Jesus is tempted. Jesus spent 40 days fasting, and then he is tempted by the devil. The devil tempts him three ways. The first one is he says, hey, you're hungry. You just fasted for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. Right, physical cravings, the cravings of the flesh. The second temptation, uh, the devil takes Jesus and says, hey, jump from the top of this temple. Angels will catch you. You won't even stub your toe. You are the son of God, right? That's the pride of life. Hey, you don't have to worry about this because of who you are. And the last temptation that Satan says is he takes Jesus up so he can see all the kingdoms in the world. And the devil says, if you would just bow to me, I will give you all that you see, the cravings of the eyes. Each and every time that Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus rejects the lie, and he quotes scripture. He quotes truth. I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word. Like we got, and John 1, it talks about this. I'm going to go over to here. It's got John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. Go to verse 14, skip a little bit down. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. It says, Jesus is the word. Jesus literally is the word. What he says goes. But when he is tempted, he doesn't refute temptation with his own words, uh, which, uh, FRI, his own words would have been enough. He is literally the word. Every time he does so, he quotes scripture. He's modeling for us what we need to do when temptation comes. We need to cling to the truth. It means that Jesus knew the word before the temptation. Now, you can't cram for temptation, right? That just, that's not how it works. 
Uh, you have to hide God's word in your heart so that when the time comes, it will give you power. Uh, I told you guys that at part one of this series, uh, this passage we looked at at the beginning, First uh, John 2, that holds a special place for me because that is the first passage that I ever memorized. I memorized it without uh, a piece of candy for memorizing it. I memorized it without, without it being for a grade. There was no tangible benefit other than I wanted to hide God's word in my heart. And it's a verse that I've used, that I've used to fight temptation. Because temptation is not of the Father, it's of the world. And one day this world will fade away. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. I want to pause and unpack that phrase right there that it says in verse 17. Anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. If I was to ask you guys, uh, I'd ask anybody, what does it mean to please God there would be a variety of answers. Some people might say it pleases God to go to church. Some people might say it pleases God uh, to tithe and to give to the church. Uh, pleases God to do good to others. It pleases God to be a light in a dark world. It pleases God to encourage those around us. But here's the truth. It is impossible, impossible to please God without the cross. Without remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross and accepting him, it is impossible to please God. Isaiah 64, 6 says it, says it this way. We were all infected and impure with sin. We, when we display our righteous deeds, that means the things that we think are good, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Those things, although they might have been good, they might have been our righteous deeds, they're like filthy rags when it's compared to the glory and the righteousness of God. Our very best is not enough. That even if we strive to live a good and moral life, we could never hit the mark. We'll never be good enough. The only way to please God is to accept Jesus as the Lord of your life. There's, there's no other way. Uh, a little later today, we're going to do a communion together. Uh, if you're not familiar, that's where we drink a little juice and this little wafer and we remember the cross. We remember the price that Jesus paid to save us. And communion is, is somewhat of a contradiction. Uh, it's this somber and, and serious moment where we remember and we reflect on the fact that, that Jesus died for our sins. And then at the same time, it's also a celebration, right? That Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He, he didn't just die and go to a grave, but three days later, uh, he rose to life by the power of God. He defeated sin and death. And when we put our trust in Jesus as our Savior, uh, sin has no more power over us. So it's this contradiction. It's this bittersweet thing. It's, yes, my Savior died. That's, that's awful. He died because he loves me and because of my sin, but he also saved me because of that. It's a bittersweet thing because without the cross, you don't get the empty grave. Communion is a bit of a, a contradiction. Last week we looked at David, and David himself is somewhat of a contradiction. Some things about him don't make sense, somewhat of an oxymoron. Uh, David was our prime suspect from the Bible when it came to someone who gave in to the cravings of his eyes. And today we're going to continue to look at that story at David and his, his pride. But not only is David guilty of these sins that we're going to see, but the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. It says this in Acts 13, 22. God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, 
a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. How do those two things go together? That's, that's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense. Last week we saw David and how he struggled with his eyes and uh, specifically how they caused him to sin. He saw Bathsheba and he had to have her. He gave in to that craving and it cost him greatly. It started with his eyes, but it did not, did not end there. Uh, he, he tries to deceive others. He has uh, men killed in battle. His eyes were just the tip of the iceberg. And so today what I want to do is I want to pick off where we ended the story in 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to pick off right where we ended last week. It says this uh, in verse 22. This is after David has uh, committed adultery. He, he's taken this woman who, who honestly didn't have much of a choice. He has killed this man and in the process killed others. He's done everything to hide and hide his sin and to see people around him. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. God wants David to understand what he has done. That David's pride is it's obstructing his vision. That when we are led by pride, we don't see in ourselves what's so easy to see in others. Pride blinds us of our shortcomings. And so God sends his prophet Nathan uh, to be a mirror of sorts uh, to David. To show him the depths, to show David the depths of the decisions that he's made. And it's, it's pretty amazing, the story. Uh, Nathan comes and he's going to tell him a story. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. He, he tells him a story because if he just said, you've done this, look at the things you've done, David's not going to see it. Because his pride has blinded him to himself. When it's somebody else, he can see what's going on. Let's read these first few verses. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate off the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. There's, there's two men here. There's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man took from the poor even though he had plenty of his own. That's exactly what David had just done to Uriah. But David, he's completely blinded by his pride. He doesn't see the similarities. Pride is easy to spot in others, but incredibly difficult to spot in ourselves. So here's how David, he's going to respond to the story. He just hears this, and here's what David said in verse 5. He's furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. You notice how it's about somebody else. And David's got some pretty strong feelings about this. That man deserves to die for what he's done. Verse 7, it flips it all around. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. 
is you. You're the man that's taken from this poor man who only had one. You had plenty, but you went and you stole the man's wife. He continues, Nathan tells him a little more. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. Saul is the previous king. I gave you your master's house and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible thing? You have murdered Uriah the Hittite. And with the sword of the, with the, sword of the Ammonites, and you stole his wife. Nathan kind of got David in his feels a little bit. And then he turned it on him and said, thou art the man. It's you. And then he says, uh, and speaking on behalf of God, he says, David, I gave you everything. I, gave you, I literally gave you the whole kingdom. I gave you the palaces. I gave you everything. And I would have given you much more. But you've done this horrible deed. You've murdered a man and you stole his wife. God uses Nathan to clearly say what David has done wrong here. And after he condemns David's behavior, he tells David the consequences. This is pretty, this is pretty deep here. This is pretty heavy, what, what Nathan says here to David. He says, from this time on, you will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you, happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. He, he did this thing in secret, and now it's going to happen to him in a very public way. What's happening is, is David is being stripped of this pride that he has. God is taking it away. God is giving David eyes to truly see what he has done. He's trying to strip those away. He's not trying to be mean to him. He's trying to make him come back to him. And then uh, here's how David responds to this. He confesses. He says, I have sinned greatly against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. I'm going to focus on that. But the Lord has forgiven you. Think of all that, that David's done. We got into that last week. It is a mess. Right? It is God's nature. To be generous, to give grace. That's who he is. So he, Nathan, he tells him what God has said he's going to do. Like he, he showed him how he's messed up. Uh, but there is always, hear me on this, there is always a price to be paid for sin. Obedience, it'll bring a blessing. Disobedience always has a consequence. And this time, uh, it's a steep consequence that he has to pay here. Nevertheless, this is Nathan talking to David. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child 
this is the child that he just had, right? That, that he it was born out of an affair. And this absolutely wrecks David. Absolutely wrecks him. He has gone from being full of pride, full of self, not being able to see in himself what he can so clearly see in others, right? From being humbled to his lowest point. And if you remember the last week, this is a child he tried to abandon. He tried to make everybody think this child was going to be Uriah's. He completely tried to abandon it. And now this is happening. And he is inconsolable when he hears this. Uh, here's what it says in verse 16. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. He's a completely broken man. Uh, he won't eat. The only thing he's going to do is just beg God lying on the ground. That's, that's what he's going to do. He's just going to beg, say, God, please don't do this. Keep him near me. So the elders of his house pleaded with him to, to get up and to eat with him, but David refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. Uh, and David's advisors, they're, they're afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason when the child was ill. Why he's not even going to eat. Uh, what drastic thing would he do now that the child is dead? And so they're thinking, if he was so distraught when the baby was sick, what's he going to do when we tell him the child is dead? They're, they're trying to figure out how to do this. And, and David's pretty sharp, so he saw them whispering. He realized what had happened, and he asked, uh, is the child dead? They replied, he is dead. Just to think about that for just a second. He's lost his child. What am I going to do? He's been begging God, pleading with God. He's not eating. And the child's passed away. It says, David got up from the ground. He washed himself. He put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and will serve food and ate. Then his advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you, you wept and you refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and you're eating again? They're thinking, what's, go what's going on here? David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. Why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? No. And God just answers, no. I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Okay. Just two, two thoughts about that right there. Uh, when David is grieving deeply, the first thing he does after that, you notice it? He goes and worships the Lord. He's been stripped of all of his pride. He's as humble as he's ever going to be because he sees how much it's God and it's not him. He doesn't let his circumstances determine whether or not he's going to worship God. He's going to go. He's done grieving. He goes to God. And the second thing is, he says, I will go to him one day. Even at his lowest point, he is clinging to the promise of eternity. The promise that God will reunite him with his child. I think some of us might struggle to have that same kind of attitude. 
that David, his heart is humble now. He is, he is whatever God wants. That's, that's what he wants. God's removed all of his pride. God's used this to, to humble David and to bring David back to God. And in the same way, Jesus, he humbled himself all the way to the cross to give us a path to God. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride, it, it blinds you to your sin. What humility does is humility opens your eyes to sin. Now, being humble doesn't mean being quiet or, or being weak. Uh, humility is simply remembering who you are. Like fully aware of who you are. And I, and I believe the fastest way to humility is the cross. To remember that, that Jesus died dehumanizing, uh, agonizing death. And he died that death for one reason. Love. Because he loves you. And he loves you regardless uh, of where you're at. And so as, you, as we've talked about the, the cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and the, the pride of life, you might be sitting here thinking, I've got issues I don't have it all together. I'm not living the life that, that God wants me to. Would you do me a favor and just forget your mistakes and focus on the cross? Because on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for all sin that we would ever do. Any sin that you would ever do, he's taking care of it. And he did it because he loves you. He doesn't put up with you until you get your stuff together. He loves you just the way you are. He doesn't love you because of what you do for him. He loves you because that's who he is. He proved his love for you by giving his life on the cross. The cross is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. He's for everyone. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through 11, it says this. And I think this, this is going to tie it home, bring us home well. It says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you do wrong, it says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It gives us a list of some wrongdoings. It says, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are prostitutes or practice homosexuality or who are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. list of those who, who, who are doing wrong, it describes, uh, can I just be real, it describes most of us in this room at one time or another. Can I get an amen, right? Thieves, greedy, drunks, abusive cheaters, right? Anybody? Okay, no, maybe we're not going to raise our hand there. But hey, uh, here's what's even better. Uh, everybody in this room, at one point we might have identified with some of that. But everybody in this room is able to call on Jesus and he will save you. 
that through the cross we are, we are cleaned, we are made holy, we are made right with God, not by anything we've done, but simply by calling on Jesus. So what I want us to do in these last few moments is to remember the cross. That's what communion is all about, right? Remembering the cross, the price that God paid so that we could be saved. It cost God his one and only son, Jesus. When we remember the cross, it reminds us that, that we don't bring anything to the table. When it comes to our salvation, we didn't bring anything to the table. It says we are saved by, by faith, not by any works or any deeds that we do. When we remember the cross, it removes any pride that we might have in ourselves because God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The cross strips us of any pride because we don't deserve that kind of grace. The cross keeps us humble. Let's remember the cross this morning. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 11, we get some instruction uh, about how we should do communion. You should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for before we take communion, uh, we're going to take that corporately as a church together. But before we do that, we are going to examine ourselves individually. Right? Uh, for you to look at your life, not to look at anybody else's life, to look at your life and see, are there areas where maybe I need to ask for forgiveness? Are there parts of my life where I could be more in line with what God has called me to? Or maybe you just need to sit at the cross and say, Thank you for all you've done for me. Whatever you need to do, you take as long as you need. We'll wait for you. We'll wait for one another. And then when you're done examining, what we want you to do is come grab uh, the elements. We've got these little trays here uh, for the Lord's Supper. And there's a reason we have these on stage instead of in our seats. It would have been uh, a lot more uh, logistically better for them to just be in the seats. But there's a reason. It's, it's real simple. Uh, when you walk up here, you're going to come up here empty-handed. Uh, you aren't bringing anything. It didn't cost you anything to grab these. What a beautiful picture of our salvation. That we didn't bring anything to the table. We came empty-handed. We came empty-handed and, and Christ offered his life for you. And it gave you everything. So as you walk up to grab the elements, I want you to remember that just like your salvation, you brought nothing to the table. And once everybody has got their elements and have a seat back down, we'll partake in them together. So right now, at this time, would you uh, just reflect and have that attitude of prayer and examine your life. And then when you're ready, whenever you're ready, uh, come and grab these elements for the Lord's Supper and have a seat. So right now, uh, reflect and pray.
just talk to everybody. Is there anybody who needs some more time? Just slip your hand up if you do. Well, we'll wait on you. Everybody's ready. Let's go ahead and open up this container because uh, <laughs> we find out these are hard to open up, okay? Open it up. That wafer just set it to the side. And then go ahead and open up that container with the juice. Gingerly open up that container with the juice. Everybody good? That was like a Chinese finger trap. That was surprising. Hard to do. I'm sorry. We will buy a better one next time, all right? Uh, if everybody's ready, let's, let's do this. It says, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, it says, On the night he was betrayed, uh, Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. And said, This is my body, uh, which is given for you. Do this. same way he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people do this in remembrance of me church let's let's stand and worship uh, let's stand and worship like a group of people who realize we brought nothing to the table and that regardless of how life is going right now uh, we want you to know that God has prepared a place for you and one day you will be there with him that, that when our sin was deep his grace uh, was greater, when, you're, when your shame was wide, his arms are even wider let's stand and worship him 